30 plus years ago yeah. and, uh, when I first when I first came down here and uh, it was yeah it was actually during the sort of mid to early 80s when I first arrived in the West Country that I first came across the Witch Museum and then um, as now it, it it wasn't widely known about now it's interesting because the um, you know it's the commonly held knowledge was that there was a witchcraft museum in the Isle of Man run by a Gerald Brusso Gardner yes and uh, we, we all know this story well we all knew obviously as a as a as a young keen earnest pagan i knew all knew all about that but i never knew about a uh, witchcraft museum in cornwall yes 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 and that's what we're going to talk about next ladies and gentlemen this is steve patterson author of the very very uh good book cecil williamson's book of witchcraft a grimoire of the museum of witchcraft and this is by troy books everyone and a very very good book not only the book itself but the quality of the book is incredible it's a hard copy um hardcover um copy and um we have to thank jane cox for and troy books for being uh, so generous to send us the um the the review copy it's really uh, very no i know i know that um uh, we're going to talk about the book we're going to talk about what you know uh, the work of cecil and all of that but i know that you know in around 96 was when you know Graham King took over the museum and you were very much involved in the process of cataloging and doing all of these things in there now um how how was it i mean to be involved in this in this um, you know work and and you're basically you are <laughs> part of the history of the museum forever <laughs> um, oh my lord right? i never thought of it like that <laughs> it is true isn't it it is true i, I suppose so i've yes. become a museum artifact yes <laughs> no we don't want that to happen <laughs> but but isn't that uh, uh how was that experience for you i mean it, it was an incredible experience and it was as with many incredible experiences it was quite unexpected how it fell into place as i said i'd been visiting the museum some 10 years before when it was under the ownership of cecil hugh williamson who's a mysterious character um actually met him on a number of occasions behind uh, the counter there and um, it was very much it was a place of, of dust and shadows and a very mysterious place and um as you said in about 96 graham king took over the museum um graham king was um he was a businessman and he'd moved down from up country and um, it was a new venture for him and uh basically had taken over this museum where very little work had been structural work had been done on it for probably some years probably since even the 70s 1970s so he got together a group of volunteers from the area people who were sort of vaguely interested in it and um to come along and um help him um catalog some of the artifacts now all the artifacts initially in the museum were sort of behind glass cases and as I said they've probably been nailed up behind the glass from since the 1970s and what you needed to do is you need to empty all the cases all the electrics had to be ripped out the electricians were arriving on on the Monday so we had one weekend to go through the entire museum taking out every single artifact boxing it up 
wrapping it and starting to catalogue it, mm -hmm. and which was an incredible task and on all sorts of levels. It was very exciting and absolutely exhausting. Um, we were all learning on the job. I mean, none of us, to be, to be absolutely honest with you, none of us came from museum backgrounds. We're all a ragbag bunch of people who had a very disparate knowledge of folklore, folk religion, witchcraft, magic, history, and we all got together, we all sort of pitched in, um, and yeah, worked through the entire collection. And it was, it was an incredible experience, which um, a number of, I'll tell you a few stories about that as, the, as, 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 um, as this interview progresses. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we had some quite strange experiences, believe me. And then, um, and then there was this exercise book, Little Blue well, Book, right? And it had a title, Witchcraft, across the cover. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> now, as a background to this, old Cecil Williamson, the proprietor of the museum, said he passed it over to Graham King in uh, 1996 and in 1999 um, he passed away mm -hmm. now he was a, Cecil Williamson was a mysterious character very interesting character he had studied folk magic throughout the best part of the 20th century um, he had published very little he had only published a handful of articles yeah, he'd never written any books. He had. Uh, he was not keen on um, interviews. Um, he was. If you spoke to him, he wouldn't stop speaking. He was a great. He was a great uh, weaver of yarns and tales, and uh, but he was not. Paradoxically, even though he could, he described himself as a showman, um, and. He, he would, as I said, it was very difficult to stop him talking sometimes about his, his magical ideas. He wasn't a public man. And so when he left the museum, no one really quite knew where Cecil Williamson was coming from. Um, and as you so rightly say, we found a small blue exercise book with witchcraft written on the front. I found it, um, as far as I can recall, in a... Um, a um, stack of old books and manuscripts um, upstairs in the living quarters um, but the interesting thing about this was this was the closest thing Cecil Williamson had produced as a complete work it's um, it's an absolutely fascinating mix of folk magic um observations bits of folklore he goes into his thoughts about egyptology he makes he discusses his ideas about the links between um 20th century um traditional witchcraft practices and ancient egypt mm -hmm. um it's a very strange idiosyncratic collection of traditional witchcraft from cecil williamson now he puts in there's no sources there's no provenance there's no date um just this very strange collection of, of traditional folk magic <laughs> and this is this is you know what we were left to work with 
Well, and, and we do love it. We do love it. But you, you say that when you open the book and, and you look at it, it really is very well written down. So it really looks like he took his time to write it. And it was not really a, a notebook of sorts. It was really no. something that he wrote down. So he probably got his all of his pieces and bits into this on purpose. So he really actually passed it into this little manuscript wasn't it right this is what this is what i assume yeah it looks mm -hmm. like it was it's written in one go it's all in the same handwriting using the same ink and it's there is a sort of a, a cohesiveness to the whole sort of pattern of it so it looks like maybe he sort of constructed it from notes he had now he was a um he's great like sherlock holmes he was a great one for keeping card indexes and uh, <laughs> familiar with card indexes? Oh, yes, sort of the, yes, yeah, the, yes. Yeah, the, the, the boxes of little card indexes. And um, this is the wonderful world we lived in before computers <laughs> took over. <laughs> and it's... Uh, um, sadly, I personally don't have a, any card indexes. That's because only because I can't find any. But if I did, I'd have one. But I'd, <laughs> I, work, I, I work from boxes and boxes of, of, of notebooks myself. But anyway, Cecil Williamson, he was a great one for letter writing. There's a great number of correspondences of him, from him. If you, if you asked him any questions, he would write to you and he'd write these wonderful handwritten letters in his wonderful handwriting. And... And he would go off into the sort of great young, long yarns and tales, and he'd he'd tell you about everything in the magical world, about apart from what you initially asked him about. He had a he had a great way of uh, of um, what did old in the Cochrane tradition they call it lap wings, don't they? Sort of um, yes. great grey magic, yes. sort of yes. Uh, yes. leading you off left, right, and centre. That was a. Uh, that was one of his fortes. So yeah, this so this handwritten collection of folk magic was very much um, in character with him. We're, we're talking about a man who was um, he was a film director, he was a writer, he was a set builder, which is incredible. Also, he, he was a spy for the British secret services, and and he also, as as you as he would he would say right, um, he would say that he studied the silent world of witchcraft. Absolutely, um, and and it's really interesting because you know, he he talks about the um, all of these cunning folk, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more because you've been there and you've been part of the history and all of that of the museum also, and being there, you know, hands on, y you know how or we can imagine what would it be like. So he he would have contact with uh, you know cunning folk and. And, and it's pretty much this is what really is in this little book, um, along with other things, but n notes and pieces of things that they, that would be said to him, a collection of folklore, witchcraft and spells and charms and things that he would collect from people who actually were practicing it. Is absolutely. That, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a couple of points there. I mean, mm -hmm. firstly, he did have an incredible career. <laughs> Um, yes. It's you got you, you can't imagine sort of what he went through, but then you got to look at the context of the world he was living in. Sort of Britain, twentieth century. It was a world that was torn apart by two world wars, and uh, mm -hmm. you know Britain really did get a beating, um, especially London. And you know there were a lot of people like him who were, you know, they were living in an uncertain world. He came from a very well-to-do background, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean he had any money a lot of the old um, you know very well to do British families at the turn of the century had no money they um and I think he was very much in that category. Mm-hmm. He was sort of cast adrift in an uncertain world, and he took a lot of chances. I mean, he started off working in a tobacco plantation, and that didn't work out. He wanted to be a, he wanted to join the clergy to start off with, but his <laughs> his father wouldn't have that, so he was uh, <laughs> um, packed off to a tobacco plantation. And uh, said he got, he came back to uh, Britain, and he. Um, got involved in the British film industry and at that time Hollywood hadn't taken off I mean the film industry was all in Europe it was in France it was in Germany and you know it was in Britain so and um, then as as we well know the sort of you know the film industry pretty much moved to the States and um, so you know his, his, involve, his involvement in the British film industry wasn't um, wasn't how he really in- anticipated, but in fact, because the, the war came along and uh, he he started working for the British Secret Services. Again, there was very much a sort of tradition then of um, people from these sort of well-to-do backgrounds, sort of public school chaps going to work for the Secret Services. <laughs> it was uh, you know, it was the qualification of the day. It's all about school ties and <laughs> funny course, hand, yes. funny funny handshakes and. Uh, <laughs> And you know, there's a great tradition of these sort of you know well to well to do fellows uh, out of public school, out of Oxford and Cambridge. He he had no form. He didn't seem to have any sort of formal education, mm-hmm. by the way. In here, um, after school, but there's a lot of people like him who were interested in the occult, joining the the secret services. You know, there was a, of course, there's famously this talk of Alistair Crowley and you know other characters or. Um, you know, along the way, Dennis Wheatley. You know, yes, to, yes. To, to to name a few. And uh, um, anyway, he was uh, he he left um, after the war. He sort of joined the um, uh, um, film industry again. Um, but as I said, that was on a decline. It was then he was sort of again, like a lot of people after the war in Britain, uh, at a loose end, trying to make a new start, trying to think of a way forward. It was then he hit on the idea of incorporating his interest with witchcraft with his interest in the cinema. Now, he describes in an interview in, in the 1990s, he said, a museum is like a film. The only difference is on a film, the images move. In a museum, it's you that moves. <laughs> Which is an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, it it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a very postmodern way of looking at it. I mean, you can look at it not only visually, sort of con- conceptually. This is the way that we look at, at museum artifacts. Our ideas, our perceptions move across these objects, and um, I think. Cecil Williamson was very aware of this. He was very, very ahead of his time, I think, in a lot of the ways he thought about displays and thought about magic. So in the, in the late 1940s, that's when he started his first of a line of um, witchcraft museums, which, of course, ended up in Boscastle, where it, it still 
in position it today. Is today, yeah. Well, the 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 Cecil's story with witchcraft is 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 very interesting. There was this woman accused to there's this story that he as a child he just kind of put himself between a woman that was being accused and <laughs> or being called, Ab you know. <laughs> absolutely. This this is his story about his 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 first um, experience of witchcraft. Yes. Of course. He says he was brought up in London, as I said, by a well-to-do family. And, of course, the occult was very much in vogue at the early part of the 20th century in London. He says he was brought up in a world of... I can't remember, how did he describe it? He described it as um, cocaine, the Charleston, and occult cults, I think. So. <laughs> and this was... Uh, and he describes about his, his grandmother having these strange... Gnostic orgiastic rituals and there being mediums around. So he was he was aware of the world of magic. That was that was uh, from a very early age. But when he was at school, probably yeah, I would guess he was probably um, about eight or nine years old, maybe a little bit younger. Um, he was visiting his uncle in um, who was a vicar in a village in the um, middle of Devon in the West Country. And he was in the garden, he had a commotion going on over the wall, and there he found an old lady being set upon by some roughs from the village. And he, his first instinct was to go over there and throw himself on this old lady and uh, try and get these, these, these rough necks from the village off of her. This is exactly what he did. And... Uh, sure enough his uncle sort of heard what was going on heard the commotion came and split up the fight and what the story was what happened it, the woman was actually being accused of witchcraft <laughs> now the um the uh it was the tradition that if you scratched a witch if you drew blood from a witch you would um negate her power and this is what was going on um, another account, he says they were looking for a witch's nipple, which is a sort of a, an extraneous sign of the body, which is supposed to be a sign of witchcraft. We don't know. Anyway, whatever it was, they were assaulting this old woman. They considered it to be a witch. In a later account, he says that this witch actually took him aside and started teaching him the basics of magic. And he later quotes that he said, she said to him, look up look up young man there's other places and other things now this is an idea that sort of underpins, underpins his whole idea of magic this idea there is a magical other world that somehow exists alongside this world and magic is all about the interaction between this material world and this spiritual other world mm -hmm. that goes alongside this one now this is an idea that comes back time and time again this is the the fundamental idea behind his vision of traditional witchcraft mm -hmm. now you do uh, describe him as the unsung hero of the world of magic and folklore he's one of them and um it, it, he was an extraordinary man with extraordinary adventures um, very different from each other <laughs> you know the witchcraft adventure the spy adventure you know the theater right. adventure all of these adventures and i'm sure he lived a f very full life and wonderful with the all of these adventures now 
how was I mean you do you, you did this biographical information to contextualize a little bit more about his knowledge of magic how he got you know his knowledge about magic and all of this in the book because there's no biographical information of Cecil um, very few things about him and you do have this included in the book you wanted to contextualize this um, how how was there this is a thing that we need to know how did he collected his information what was the method right well this is um well firstly now you're absolutely right there is very little else about Cecil Williamson which I think is absolutely incredible this guy collected so much information about traditional witchcraft through the whole of the 20th century and there are hardly any other literary references to him and which I think I still think is incredible and when you do find references to Cecil Williamson he's often referred to as being somehow unreliable or a, a bit of a fraud and there's never any justification or explanation for this it's just uh, something that is constantly repeated um, the closest that anyone's come to a sort of a, a um, uh, uh, any kind of approach to sort of Cecil Williamson is uh, Mike Howard in his book of Children of Cain and he devotes a, a, a chapter to sort of talking about Cecil Williamson mm -hmm. but um, yeah Cecil Williamson um, sorry I, I've completely drifted off on that's, a tangent that's okay. what, what was your initial question <laughs> it was it was the methods the methods the, method, of, the yes. methods of his yeah yes. the methods of his collection well as I said he um he had no sort of formal training in um in history or museum keeping um he um came from his very uh, sort of a eclectic um uh, background working in the film industry working working as a spy um he he often spoke about the museum being like a spider's web that he set up the museum in order to attract people and to attract information and this was his primary method he set up his web of the museum and he sat and he waited unfortunately he wasn't that methodical about recording what he sort of came across though there is always the chance that there were a lot more records of um, his findings um, Sadly, when he died, um, his um, it, it said that his daughters destroyed a lot of his files, um, mainly because they knew very little about their father and they had no interest in his studies. And to them, they were just clearing out the house, ready to sell it. Yeah. yeah. So they emptied out his junk, and it all went on the on on the fire. And sadly, it's another one of those cases of one of the probably the greatest collections of information about traditional witchcraft in the 20th century went up in flames. Mm. Um, but as I say in the book, it's let's not dwell on that. Let's let's not dwell on what's lost. Let's look what we have got. That's right. He his <laughs> he has left. I think. It's it, it's a magical principle that the um, the whole is inherent in the part. The universe is fractal, and I strongly believe, looking at the bits of writing that he left behind mm -hmm. in uh, in his work in the museum, in what we little bits we know about his life, I think we've got a fair.
fair old bit to go on to sort of reconstruct this image of what traditional witchcraft was about mm -hmm. And certainly this manuscript goes a long way towards that. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing is, um, uh, Cecil was, you know, we we know very little about the the fact if, if he was or not a practitioner. He says he was, um, but um, we don't really know. We know really very, very little about this. There is a certain personal correspondence from 1990s about this. Can you talk a little bit about this, the... You know about his he being a practitioner. If he really was okay. a practitioner, yeah. Are you referring to the mysterious coven of Tanat? <laughs> yes, I am. I am. Right. <laughs> Cecil Williamson always publicly said he he was upfront that he was a practitioner. He was what we suppose we would call now a participant observer. He did practice the magical arts he um, he did so on a professional basis he was a he was a um, he was a cunning man in the traditional sense of the words you know people would pay him to do spells for them um, of which he said he said he has a 60% success rate which is all very precise I quite like that but that's uh, that's very, very Cecil Williamson yes um, yeah but he was always adamant he was not involved with a group yes and he was very suspect of uh, many of the magical groups at the time he was very suspect of the what emerging Wiccan tradition yes which I'm sure we'll talk about yes. shortly <laughs> and uh, he was very um, suspicious of the sort of what he considered decadent and actually quite ineffective ritual magic sort of groups that were around at the time mm. um, so he, he was very yeah he's very scornful of sort of working sort of magic formally in groups but now here's the interesting thing um, in the museum there were um, several tableaus um, little scenes little magical scenes now often a lot of people were very scornful about these they said they were lurid um distasteful um drawn from um sort of popular images of witchcraft in film and books like dennis wheatley for example mm -hmm. but i always suspected there was more to them than that for a start they weren't drawn from popular images of witchcraft they really were quite idiosyncratic mm -hmm. there was one of them for example was um an image of a horned a horned being in the woods um on a throne around him there were a number of um what he described as tarred fetuses hanging on trees and there was a young female witch uh, kneeling before him and this he actually produced as a as a postcard and which i think is quite incredible this is what you sent <laughs> back to your granny you're saying i'm a, having a lovely holiday in cornwall and you've got a postcard with tarred fetuses on it but um, it's very it's very cecil williamson and a description that this young witch is giving these fetuses to the horned god 
as an offering. And a, another um, tableau de, um, depicts a temple. Again, this temple is completely it out on its own. It, it's I, I I can't see it having any sort of similarities to any sort of literary or sort of film images of a witch's temple. Now that always struck me as being rather strange. If he wanted to do a popular image of witchcraft, he could really easily do that. There's a lot of contemporary images he could have drawn from, but mm -hmm. he didn't. There was something really quite strange and off the wall about these images. Now, again, Mike Howard, who um, has researched uh, um, the occult for and witchcraft for many years, produced a number of books, produces the Cauldron Journal, um, corresponded with Cecil Williamson over many years and in the 1990s he had personal correspondence Cecil suggested to him that these tableaus were actually inspired by this coven of Tanit and he also suggested to Michael Howard that he was somehow involved with this coven now there does seem to be a um, an unknown source in all Cecil Williamson's magical work a lot of it you can trace to folkloric traditions and folkloric literature but there's an underlying thread that seems to be completely idiosyncratic and original it's almost um, I mean think in textual analysis you would call it a cue wouldn't you it's, a, it's this unknown um, source this unknown thread yes and I've often felt that this this points towards some sort of tradition some sort of group that he may have had contact with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now uh, Doreen talks about this she makes a, a reference to it on, on her visits to um, to the museum one visit to the museum in the 60s 1961 to be precise and she says um, she says this this was a, a, the scene the tableau in, in the museum of the priestess lying in the altar um, that was connected with or somehow it would be uh, something related with uh, uh, the people what would they call it the Troy people wasn't it that's uh, right the yeah. Troy people that's right <laughs> yeah no he spoke about the Troy people he, again he's another enigmatic thread he talks about which uh, yes. doesn't appear to appear anywhere else he talks about them being a wandering cunning folk coming up the western seaboard from the Mediterranean up into Britain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he sees these as somehow being connected with what he called the sea witches mm -hmm. this is a uh, brand of traditional cunning magic that grew up around um, the seashore now this I think we could and this is just me doing the the connection here why he actually chose Boscastle as the location for this absolutely year. it Scott. might be <laughs> he, this is he did say this he said that yeah. which that Boscastle was known for boats pigs and witches he described <laughs> yes. and um it was a uh, and he does he, he there is actually very little written folkloric um, um, references to that uh, boss castle in, in any connection with witchcraft. But he must have come across an oral tradition about the old sea witches yes. um, down in the harbour who would um, sell their sort of magical wares to the sort of sailors come, who came and go, came and went from 
because it used to be a very busy port mm-hmm. back in mm-hmm. the day. It sort yeah. of died with the sort of the advent of railways at the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm. But yeah, there was a lot of the the big ships would have been coming and going from from Boss Castle mm-hmm. and. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's a wonderful wonderful. Uh, I mean, I don't know it. I've never been there, but people said that it's very magical, very interesting. It's a very magical place. It's a it's a deep cut valley on the north rocky north coast of Cornwall, yeah. and the sea there. There's an old charm. They say it's a watery grave by day and night. <laughs> the sea out there, and it's uh, yeah, the waves come crashing in against the great cliffs along there. It's a it's a great bleak beauty there it's a yes yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place and a very very fitting place for 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 a witchcraft museum ladies and gentlemen we're talking with steve patterson about his book cecil williamson book of witchcraft a grimoire of the museum of witchcraft from troy books um, by the way you can just go onto their website www.troybooks.co.uk and um, they do have i think also a blog of news and things that you can actually you know just put troy books on google and you go there um this is uh, along with the incredible information of this manuscript that was, um, you know, discovered in the museum, and that, um, you know, Graham King and, uh, you know, wanted to see published, and, you know, you come up with this fantastic book uh, that includes not only that, but also (laughs) a couple of other things uh, in it. One of them is something that you, uh, that it's called calling down the moon which is very interesting because this is a very well known um wiccan uh, or wicca ritual and uh <laughs> it isn't really quite what it is in wicca is it because uh, in cecil's um point of view and and how he looked at it it was quite different absolutely um as we were just talking about he was very interested in the sea witches he described as the sea witches and this appears to be a charm that he claims to have learnt from the sea witches mm. now just up the coast from Boss Castle on the, right on the Devon Cornwall border is, is another place called Morinstow and um, at the end of the 19th century there was a very famous vicar there by the name of the Reverend Stephen Hawker very interesting character um he collected um, an, um, quite a considerable amount of folklore. Um, he's done some beautiful, quite esoteric writing. He was. Um, it was said that the Reverend Hawker um, instigated the Harvest Festival in the church. I, was like, I don't know if you have the Harvest Festival in, in the church in the states. It's, <laughs> it's, I, uh, I don't know. I do not go to the church. <laughs> right. But they're everywhere. You can't avoid I them. I think. Yes. But yeah, anyway, yeah. the Rev- the Reverend Steve- Stephen Hawker, he was said that he was in contact with a witch called Cherry. And he actually collected a lot of her charms and her spells. He had a, he had a great interest in the other world, the spirit world. Um, and one of these charms he collected was this charm of calling down the moon. Now, the charm in this charm it's 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 to, one needs to sort of look at the moon as the full moon as it hovers over the water when the moon rises and it hovers over the water 
you'll see a it makes a path of light across the water now the witch stands on the shore looking out at this path of light that goes across the water to the moon and through various magical processes uh, visualizes the moon bouncing down this path across the water until it actually consumes the witch now for um, for those with a, a knowledge of esoteric practices you will probably see within that brief descript description that there's several keys there as to the efficacy of that particular charm but this is what you described as calling down the moon uh, this could be used as a form of divination or other kinds of sort of magical practices but it's a way I think in a way of unifying the body of the witch with that of the moon in a magical ritual mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is it's very interesting because it's a solo ritual which is totally not what it is in the Wiccan context uh um, and it's very interesting because it is used for and you, you describe that experience in the book um, for scrying um, or at that point it was for scrying um, and it's Cecil's own experience isn't it of this drawing down the moon absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah and it's, yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very much based on his own experience of, of, yeah. of, of, of something that he sort of came across yeah. and he's is, is, is quite clear about this about many of the sort of traditional witchcraft practices are very simple and um, this is again a very key factor of a lot of the sort of traditional witchcraft he talks about there's no elaborate witch rituals there's no these and thous there's no skulls or you know rites in the church in midnight these are all very very simple rituals that involve unifying the soul of the witch with the soul of the landscape around them and, and concentrating on 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 the symbols of their magic now this is another thing that you talk about in the book it's the landscape um and you know uh, most of the people do not have this you know uh, they really think that it's all about bubbling cauldrons in the middle of the woods with you know the moon right. above you um but it, actually there is a very intricate um, um, methodology or um, even, uh, you know, uh, the fact that the landscape, um, you know, plays a lot into the practices of the, of the, of the traditional witches. Um, it's, it's, that is why we talked about, you know, West Country, you know, witchcraft and, you know, all of these things and it, they're not similar to any other points of, you know, of England or, you know, or, or places uh, in, in the world. Um, in, in writing this, how did you find that the role of, the, of this landscape is important in, in the practice of, of, of the traditional witchcraft that Cecil describes? Well, this is, this is an interesting paradox in a way because in many ways Cecil Williamson talks about sort of magic as being a personal practice <laughs> yes. it's all about it's all about the practitioner and it's all about the relationship between the practitioner the object of their magic and the spirit world mm -hmm. but all this takes place within the context of a community and a landscape Again, he, 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 he keeps coming back to this and interestingly he sort of he very um, 
specifically refers to the old prehistoric standing stones as being connected very strongly with witchcraft now now this is very interesting because in nowadays there's a there is a very uh, clear and uh, common connection in our mind between um witchcraft and the old prehistoric standing stones the prehistoric places but this is quite a modern connection in a lot of ways people didn't really start overtly talking about um uh standing stones um and megalithic sites in a magical context connected with witchcraft until maybe even the 1970s you'd be hard pushed to find earlier references than that Cecil Williamson did he was one of the earlier I mean I, I would guess some of his descriptions sort of come from around about the 1960s um, he um, he was very clear about this connection and he talked about the old standing stones as being inextricably linked to the landscape and then embodying energy and memories of the land and the witch being somehow being able to tap these stones and and tap this energy there is um a very uh, and this is very interesting um uh, uh, steve because you know um there is a similar feeling in uh, the in Portugal in the Iberia Peninsula, and uh, that stones uh, have in them the memories of the t of the times, and that if you right. can tap into them, you can actually access to that. So, and the knowledge you see the knowledge. So, uh, and it's very interesting that you're saying that because it's a little bit of a connection there. Now, world of spirits. Many people say, you know, you can do whatever you want, but if you do not, if you don't really have a connection to the world of the spirits, or or even a little uh, pact, or uh, you know, some sort of uh, contract with a spirit, um, you, you can't really do anything that it's effective. Um, he was very, very much. Um, you know, uh, adamant about this, about the connection of the spirit world and with the spirit world in his practices, uh, you know, the spirits and how we, you know, um, I interviewed uh, uh, Lavana Morgan um, in a previous show and she talked to me about how he talked to her about the spirit jars and, you know, all of these things. And it seems to me that it's a very important part of his work also and of traditional witchcraft in general absolutely um without a contact with the spirit world magic amounts to little more than mind tricks <laughs> hypnotism it's um it's it's i think a part of nature that you can't ignore this world is only a tip of an iceberg behind it is a vast underlying spirit world and the magician should ignore this at their peril now Cecil Williamson was very was very overt about this he, he was also absolutely intrigued by the fact that um, um, the growing movement of Wicca had very little interest in the spirit world and um, he <laughs> and he was also very interested that the church had very little interest in the spirit world as well um, for something that seemed so obvious and so so 
much very much part of his life he was a devout animist he talked to spirits all yeah. the time there was a wonderful story that um he um everything in his house had a spirit and he would talk to everything including the toaster and the vacuum cleaner and the television they all had spirits and he would greet them all in the morning and um he would uh put them to bed at night now um apparently when he died um his um so as i said his daughters and um, were stripped out of the house and they commented yeah. to um, graham king the last the last proprietor of the museum they were, they were actually intrigued because they said they couldn't get a single electrical appliance in the work in the house to work <laughs> <laughs> so there you go it's, uh, well uh, i guess that cecil is laughing right now absolutely absolutely and um but graham was saying when he um when he was uh, negotiating the sale of the um, witchcraft museum with mm -hmm. Cecil Williamson, often Cecil Williamson would uh, have to go away and to, con to consult his shadow, consult the spirits. Yes. On sort of a, you know, it's, it's absolutely very much part of his life. But it's also, one's got to remember that Cecil, he saw magic not just as a practical thing about achieving ends, he also was very aware of a spiritual dimension to it. He only often spoke about this. He often spoke that one day we're going to die. We're going to this material body is going to go, and we are going to enter into this spirit world. And so it was a very pragmatic thing. He said, "So it's best to be acquainted with it while we're alive, <laughs> because at some stage this is going to be our whole being." And. Um, and our rela our reality uh, from that point Ab on. Ab abs absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, this concept of a spirit world was absolutely key to his practice and his philosophy. And I think you can only really understand his work and and the magic of the traditional witch in this context. When the traditional witch is out there and they are burning. Um, burning the bundles of say burning bundles of, of gorse and sweeping it through the air or turning the bull roarer around the head making around yes. the heads making uh making the, the great howling whirring sign what they're doing is that it's not the material object what they're doing is they're setting off a, a resonance in the spirit world mm -hmm. and a calling forth a spirit power from the spirit world that's uh, you know something that it's so simple that I don't really think that um, a lot of people think about and, and and they call themselves witches some of them actually <laughs> oh. but you know so um, and and you know I think also that there is um, as always you know in everything a little bit of um, uh, fear you know, to do that. I think that, you know, in, in, in Cecil and in, in all of the traditional witchcraft, um, you know, the cunning fog and all that, there was this um, uh, very, uh, it, it was nothing. It was just, you know, it was what it was. It, it, there's no, nothing to it. You know, the, the, the communion with the spirits is just part of the daily, you know, routine. Um, it, and but people today, I think that they are very much afraid of it. Um, well, really yeah, and in in a way, I mean, I think fair enough. Some spirit contact contacts are absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
I remember the uh, the late great Andrew Chumney once uh, said to me, "There's a sure sign of a true spirit contact. Contact is it's absolutely terrifying." <laughs> no, I think it's, no, is it? It's a good. It's a good. It's a good uh, good benchmark to go by I think yeah yeah absolutely ladies and gentlemen uh, Steve Patterson wonderful conversation Cecil Williamson's book of witchcraft a grimoire of the Museum of Witchcraft by Troy Books uh, wonderful conversation and uh, we're talking about this um, incredible man and um, did he actually uh, Cecil Williamson described himself how do you know how uh, how did he describe himself how did he describe himself? Yes, as as you know, oh, and, he he described himself as a showman. Um, he uh, uh, described himself as a demonologist. Yes, um, <laughs> he was a uh, in oddly for someone again, like as I was saying earlier, paradoxically, as someone who who was living this very public life of having a museum, he really was did not want to put himself in the centre of the picture. He um, he wanted to put his work, I think, out in front of him. He was sort of when he does describe himself, I think he's just. Um, I wonder often if he's, he's he's playing with the interviewers with some of the things he says. Now, if we go to the museum witchcraft today, um, I'm sure that there will be things, to, you know, display of things and and. and is there anything of Cecil? Yes, absolutely. The core of the collection is Cecil Williamson's collection. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's grown over the years, and there's been sort of bits coming and going. Tableaus aren't there anymore, um, but um, most of the collection is Cecil's collection. I yeah. mean, I mean his his own. Um, were they retrieved any kind of instruments that he would? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, interestingly, um, as he said, the uh, the accoutrements of the um, West Country Wayside witches were few. Mm -hmm. It was um, he was very he was, again he was quite scornful of um, Kent sort of Wicker, which he described as the Sword and Dagger Brigade. <laughs> um, going round with all their clutter he, he, he didn't have a bar of that there's some very simple accoutrements his his greatest thing he had was his, his stick which he called sticky which is a wonderful turned walking stick which is a, a very traditional tool of the west country cunning person and um, well I'm sure you, we all know the uh, esoteric significance of, of of a walking stick. There, but it often turns up in sort of the folk traditions of uh, of it. And he said it, he he got it off a um, when he briefly had the museum in um, Windsor, which of course is the also the seat of the royal family, mm -hmm. Windsor Castle. It's just up the road. And um, when he had the museum in Windsor, he was approached by a, an old lady. Um, who claimed to be one of the, the last of the official witches employed by the British royal family? <laughs> uh, lady, she was a lady by the name of Rosa Woodman, and this was her stick. This was her sort of magical stick. Anyway, she passed away and sort of passed this along with several other bits of magical paraphernalia on to Cecil Williamson. She also passed on her old familiar, a toad, 
um, but Sis Williamson said, says he couldn't uh, he, he couldn't keep up with the rigours of toad maintenance. So he uh, he found a lovely grave in a graveyard and uh, an old tomb, and he deposited the uh, toad in there under a nice big slab and uh, left him there to live out his days. But uh, no, it's uh, Sis Williamson <laughs> stick apparently came from this Rosa Woodman. That's incredible. Which yeah. you know, it's not nothing new. I mean, it's nothing new new to to know that the royal family um had uh, some some sort of connection with uh, or had someone you know uh, working for them i mean john d and all of that so, but uh, it, you know but it really is very interesting now with all uh, out of all of these things um that you you know you've researched and you came across and you know the book has uh, incredible texts about uh, uh, several aspects of traditional witchcraft, which is, it, it, this book is just a precious stone, I think, in 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 the books about traditional witchcraft. Not only because it is about well, Cecil, <laughs> yeah. Not not only because it is about Cecil, but it is about also um, very very defined areas of uh, traditional witchcraft, and it's really incredible uh, and very well well, well written, um, Steve. What did you learn on on the process of writing this? I mean, what was there anything that you learned from this? Crikey, an enormous amount. Um, <laughs> where, where to start on that? Um, firstly, can I just mention? <laughs> this is, I just want to paint you a little picture of what's going on here at the moment. I'm uh, I'm at the um, the Troy Books headquarters, which is a small granite cottage right in the. Uh, depths of West Penwith it's a misty night outside the wind's howling, the mist's coming in and uh, we're in their front room and we've got all our dogs with us I've got three <laughs> dogs here two large lurchers and a small terrier and they're all trying to sort of fight for attention at the moment while I'm talking for <laughs> you. So, that's you, okay so, no I've so, heard, I've so heard. This is a, yeah. we're, we're in a cunning cottage here with all our familiars and they're they're getting a, they're <laughs> starting to get a bit agitated um, no it's good right. it's all good okay. you know okay. um, it's, it's all part of it <laughs> absolutely that's what I keep telling myself but there you go and what did I learn from the book right. when I started I said I started the book with it with with, um, with the uh, uh, manuscript um, the Cecil Williamson witchcraft manuscript now initially I was just gonna we were gonna type it up make it legible and I was gonna do a few annotations on it mm -hmm. now as soon as I started this I realized hang on I can't just annotate this there's so much it's the only way you can understand it is in the context of Cecil Williamson's life and his beliefs mm -hmm. so this is when the book really started to expand first of all I, I there was no biography of Cecil Williamson at all and so I I'm working from his own correspondences uh, his own letters I started to re try and patch together a story of his life now I was, I was very particular about this um, I'm not a historian I'm a folklorist and uh, I have 
not used any secondary sources. I haven't been foraging around in parish records or anything. I've been working almost entirely from Cecil Williamson's own descriptions of his life, his mm-hmm. own letters, his own writings. This is Cecil Williamson's story. Mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, at the moment, I, there is a lady by the name of um, Louise Fenton, she's a Dr Louise Venton I think she's approaching it from a historical background and she is actually producing a uh, biography of Cecil Williamson oh, so okay. keep your yeah. eyes open for that I'm oh, that... very excited about that and uh, it's good. a work in progress but Absolutely. hopefully that's going to emerge at some stage um, but so yeah um, to, to write this work I had to stitch together this story of Cecil Williamson's life and then I realised I had to there'd be no methodical study of his research techniques or his ideas of magic so this is what again I spent a a lot of time exploring his ideas trying to develop his ideas trying to get inside his head trying to see what, what he was explaining so yeah this is what I learned personally from the book is there was a lot more to Cecil Williamson than initially meets the eye yeah yeah and (laughs) there is a really quite a complex and cohesive magical view of the world inherent in his work and we can see that in the book we can really see that in the book well steve we have um I don't know, maybe two minutes. <laughs> I just want to, yeah. I just want to really, really thank you for your generosity of being on, on sitting on the black chair, which I'm sure that it's not black because rarely is <laughs> the one that you're sitting <laughs> at. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> but the black chair is the idea of the black chair is actually a sit of wisdom. So. Um, so you're you're in the sit of wisdom today and sharing right. this with us it's really really a pleasure awesome. thank you and it's been a pleasure to talk about it it's wonderful um don't don't go anywhere um thank you again for being on the black chair my pleasure thank you so and that's it thank you so much everyone for being here and to listen to us more on the black chair will come and we'll see who will sit on it next until then have a wonderful wonderful week